Hello, and welcome back to Cole Hard Facts Podcast. I am your host, Cole Cochran, and today we'll be covering a few topics. But before that, I do want to address that I apologize for the delay. There was a technical difficulty and erased all my files that I put in, but thankfully, I did a little bit more research into the topics to provide a little bit more of a detailed podcast for you today and to get more commentary in there. Also, I'm hoping to bring on more guests as the summer comes along, especially around state politics and like development of bills, uh, because Maine's a pretty interesting state right now and has a lot of interesting things going on, and I hope to cover some of them in the next couple of weeks. So the first thing on uh, today is uh, regarding the United States, uh, not the state of Maine, and it's the potential second reconciliation package for infrastructure. Now, about two or three weeks ago, Biden, along with five Democrats and five Republicans, some prominent Republicans like Mitt Romney, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Joe Mancha, uh, Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, uh, came to a compromise on an infrastructure proposal that was a little over $1 trillion, which was $1.2 trillion over eight years. Now, first, I want to point out that it is a huge compromise. That is a fourth of Biden's initial proposal. He initially proposed $4 trillion, and it was actually going to be focusing on more than what the compromised solution has currently. Uh, so the infrastructure pr- proposal, and actually my personal grievance with it, and it has a lot of focus on classical infrastructure. Now, for those of you that have not been following the infrastructure debate in the United States Congress, um, there's been a debate between the definition of American infrastructure, and it's been very partisan for sure. Uh, so Republicans think of infrastructure as more of like the classical term that we think of, like broadband, highways, roads, anything that is regarding like private transit and just essentially uh, what we have currently and updating it. Whereas Democrats and uh, specifically progressive Democrats have focused a lot on infrastructure that is more than classical infrastructure, a lot that might be concerned around housing, for instance, or healthcare, or uh, climate change, if you will. And then they also included classical infrastructure. But that's where Biden's proposal was so large before at $4 trillion was because it included things like healthcare, pre- prescription drugs, housing, and even that classical infrastructure. So after a bunch of compromising over the past couple of months, it's essentially been reduced down to that classical infrastructure. So that's where like the question comes up, is it even a compromise at all? Or is it just a Republican proposal under the disguise of a bipartisan plan because there's been a lot of moderate Democrats that have been siding with a lot of conservatives lately that have been a part of this plan and it seems to me that this is just a Republican proposal that like the only compromise that's in it is just the spending piece Um, however President Biden has been uh, making a strong commitment to trying to have a bipartisan proposal and this is his only way However, this bipartisan proposal uh, does, uh, forgets to cover a lot of crucial uh, pieces of infrastructure. Because in my opinion, I think that 
uh, a proposal in regards to infrastructure should be focusing more on roads and highways. And I think it's time to start uh, broadening the horizon on what we consider to be infrastructure in our country. Um, I feel like that infrastructure is more of like the foundation of our country, essentially like um, the inner inner workings, the machinations of our, uh, uh, I would say, functioning, um, how we function as a country. And I think that that is far more than just roads and highways, that we have a failing public transit system, sometimes a non-existent public transit system. Um, I think that climate change is going to show that we need to adapt to those um, effects or try to mitigate them. Uh, So I think that there is a lot of problems to address and it's more about finding a proposal that's not about simply improving what we have now, but trying to, I would say, trying to adapt to our future. And I think that's more of a, a progressive type of thinking right now in our country, but I think it's more of a rational thinking as well. Like, and I think this is not something that like is unique either. I think it's something that's focusing on like, how can we adapt to the future? Like companies do it all the time when they like put out their five-year plan or they try to put out a 10-year plan for their company or trying to put out a mission statement, like what they want to achieve. Like those are things that they adapt to over time and that they try to overcome obstacles. And there's no reason that the government shouldn't function in that way either. Like the government currently functions or and a more conservative, non-reactionary approach that it's just a matter of maintaining things and upholding things. And that's kind of where we've led to when we have Republicans compromising our proposals to look more of a conservative approach, like broadband roads and highways. Um, but there might have been a bipartisan proposal and a lot of Republicans are easing up on it. I know there are 21 senators right now, including Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, working on how this proposal looked like in terms of details and like provisions. Um, But I think that there's also a bipartisan opposition as well. And a lot of crucial votes that were not considered crucial before, like progressive Democrats, are becoming more of a problem. And it kind of shows that divide in the Democratic Party right now when it comes to the approach on how we should improve our infrastructure. For instance, Senator Sanders, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, from Vermont, he's an independent who caucuses with the Democrats. He's also the chairman of the budget committee, has repeatedly said that this infrastructure proposal is far too compromised and doesn't cover crucial needs to the American people, uh, such as healthcare, prescription drugs, and climate change. And currently, he is working on a proposal uh, along with a couple of other progressive senators uh, that will total $6 trillion. And it will focus more on uh, not only the classical infrastructure, but finding ways to include healthcare, uh, which I think is very important to address in some respect, whether it might look like, like a universal healthcare or expanding coverage or trying to add on to Obamacare, um, because healthcare is infrastructure, in my opinion. I think that healthcare can definitely help um, when it comes to our failing infrastructure right now. Um, like personally, there's uh, like my, my sister, um, she doesn't have like the coverage she needs for a surgery and it uh, cost her 
like thousands of dollars. Like there's been multiple examples of that across our country, uh, but it kind of shows that there's a failing system. And I think that system is directly related to infrastructure. So Senator Sanders is trying to cover things like that. Not to mention climate change is also on his mind. I think he's been the most vocal legislator, to say the least, about climate change, along with Representative Ocasio-Cortez. And he's definitely uh, tried to implement ways on trying to encourage, like for instance, electric vehicle investment or public transit systems, or trying to improve them to be comprehensible. Uh, Because there are major portions of this country that do not have an adequate public transit system that can fit their needs. Because ultimately, Americans focus on convenience and they focus on how can we make it the shortest time possible to commute. And that's where that public transit system is kind of failing that need. And that's what Senator Sanders really wants to address. But there is a bit of a plot twist. Senator Manchin, the usual thorn in the Democrats' ass, is deciding that he will only support a package below $4 trillion. Anything north of that, he will vote against. So if there was to be a huge unity around Senator Sanders' proposal, and it was just Senator Manchin, um, he would most likely uh, not... I would say he would not have this pass. There is no way a Republican will support Senator Sanders' proposal, and even some moderate Democrats are... Uh, have some concerns about it. However, Senator Sanders has been talking about he's willing to compromise on certain provisions, but he is pretty adamant that it will not uh, go below $4 trillion. So there's been a lot of plot twists. It's been a very confusing experience when it comes to infrastructure, and I think that's something to keep in mind. It's been going all over the place, but I think that's just kind of how politics has been working currently um, because there's this rift in the Democratic Party, uh, split between trying to get a bipartisan deal on every single piece of legislation, and there have been some Democrats where they want us to utilize our majority in the time being, and trying to make sure that our government is uh, functioning the way that a Democratic government would. And it's that rift in the party that's causing a lot of these confusing experiences, especially in the public eye. Because, I mean, I rarely see division in the Republican Party. They're pretty adamant on their goals, pretty adamant on their conservative priorities. And there's rarely any moderates or conservatives in the Republican Party that stray too far from that. Whereas the Democratic Party is kind of facing that... um, I would say an identity crisis because that party is essentially splitting into progressives and moderates and it's kind of showing a weak divide in um, party politics. Uh, But I think that's just how it's going to be right now. Um, I don't see it changing much over the summer. I know it's always a lull over the summer and there's a lot of disasters or legislative disasters that happen. It happened in the Obama era as well. but. I think that this one won't recover as much and that we'll see a lot of these rifts and a lot of compromising to try to uh, reconcile with moderate Democrats. So it's been certainly an interesting experience so far and I am looking forward to keeping track of it and trying to provide the viewers like you more information on it. Um, 
I just think that uh, it's it would be most likely best uh, in regards to the interest of the American people to get a second reconciliation package, which seems ever more likely, which I was not expecting. Like, I think it was crazy when Senator Manchin came out when he said he was open to a second reconciliation package um, because there's been things like voting rights legislation that he has uh, refused to compromise on or sorry, was been pushing for compromise and trying to have Republican support. He's focused on other like priorities that like will have filibusters in them, like they would have to overcome it. And he's been trying his best to make sure there is Republican support. So when he came out for a reconciliation package that addresses other needs, that was a game changer. And I think it makes it far more hopeful than we expect um, in terms of having a second infrastructure deal pass. But it also comes to like the conclusion that this original deal seems quite unnecessary and seems more of a publicity stunt than anything uh, for the midterms, which is something I'll talk about in a couple of minutes. Um, because if you just look at it, like $1.2 trillion over eight years is obviously not adequate. And I think every Democratic senator can agree with that. And they're already planning a second reconciliation package, which will total at most $4 trillion. So that's already $5.2 trillion over eight years being covered. So if you really think about it, it's essentially a publicity stunt for the first proposal. So Democrats can say they've made bipartisan deals compared to other Republicans, which might win them more House seats or Senate seats in the midterm elections. But it seems to me that um, there really was no other reason besides that, especially since Manchin has already conceded that he will vote for vote in support of a second package but also kind of brings it to the next topic i mean midterms like that's something that's like a fiasco right now if you really think about it uh midterms are only a year away and i know they happen every two years so they always seem ever so close but everyone's already planning for the midterms you know and this infrastructure package is kind of showing like the democratic approach to the midterms and that is complete chaos if you really think about it like we have progressive democrats that are having internal fighting with moderate democrats and they'll have different approaches and right now it seems like the party is split which shows that biden might actually lose a house majority or a senate majority if he does not start making broad changes and that these changes don't have some or should have some effect before 2022. Because if they don't, we'll most likely see Republicans taking control of Congress and starting to dictate Biden's agenda. And we'll have like that same issue that we did in the Obama administration, where there was very little compromise with Republicans and nothing was getting done and everything was blockaded. Um, but it'll be quite interesting to see how it plays out I think that Democrats right now need to start unifying their response. They need to start uh, leaning more towards the progressive side. They've been favoring a lot of moderates. And what that makes it look like was that all that talking that Biden did during his presidential campaign, and especially like in the senatorial and, and uh, House campaigns, all that talking about huge change isn't really being met. And that's where a lot of progressives might have like a scenario of like a Bernie or bust or having a scenario where moderates start switching to Republicans. And that all seems plausible, and it seems that the Democratic future seems quite bleak. 
but I think they still have time to change their course is that but it's like also the idea that all those major priorities they wanted to pass are starting to fall apart and like even the ones where like they don't need to overcome a filibuster of 60 votes in the Senate they're still kind of failing because they can't get their act together to find a reconciliation package but final words on that would be I'm hopeful in the second reconciliation package I feel kind of pissed about the first package it seems more of a publicity stunt the midterms look like uh, chaos right now with that progressive and moderate split and I'm looking forward to seeing how the details will co- uh, come up and I hope to bring that in my podcast and keep you guys updated on my Instagram page which is called chf underscore podcast you can follow me there um but it's also important to note that these legislative priorities um, come at a perfect time, especially around climate change, when ExxonMobil just had a rupture in their pipeline. If you guys haven't heard about that, that was crazy. Like in the Gulf of Mexico, they had a pipeline rupture of gas, and there's like this huge fireball in like the ocean and water, and it was crazy to see. But it was like kind of reminding me of like, wow, they better get on that infrastructure package now, like yesterday. <laughs> I mean, they need to address climate change in some sort of manner, and especially regulating the fossil fuel industry might be a huge one. Um, but in other news, uh, before I go to state politics, uh, the Trump Organization, and this actually came up before I was recording, and that's why I was glad that I had a technical error, because I think this is something really important to point out. It's not really related to politics, but it's related to the Trump Organization, and that is the indictments from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. This is a crazy revelation. I know a lot of people have known that Trump Organization was being investigated. It was very hard to investigate them during the Trump era because he was president and Trump was uh, doing a lot of meddling in uh, the judicial uh, portion of our government, which was a bit concerning, uh, but it also kind of delayed a lot of those investigations they had currently before 2016. But Manhattan District Attorney's Office came out with 12 counts um, and violations of laws of the Trump Organization and the Chief Financial Officer, which is Alan Weisselberg. Um, One major one, though, I want to talk about and go more in depth in is falsifying records. Now, they were falsifying records, and I know it may seem like a classic, like, corporate trick that a lot of big corporations uh, partake in, but it's even more consequential when it comes to the Trump Organization. Because the Trump Organization, essentially their business model is surviving off of loans. They take loans against their assets, and these loans essentially is what keeps their business afloat. Um, But the weird thing though, is that falsifying records could put them in that uh, weird rift uh, when it comes to foreign banks or when it comes to banks in America even. Because essentially they have a document that they give you a contract when it comes to these loans. And one of them is that they want true and honest records from the Trump organization, right? Now, let's say that the falsifying records turns out to be true, that this indictment was true. That means that these banks have now realized that the Trump organization has false records, which means that they've been feeding them false information. So most likely they demand the records to be exposed and want those records. And most likely the Trump organization's response 
would be something along the lines of uh, either showing the true records, uh, which would be obviously uh, very consequential for the Trump organization and negatively impactful, or they'd like keep falsifying those records, which means the banks will know what they're on to. But what that would mean, though, is that the Trump organization would have all those loans cut off because those banks see a direct violation in their contract. So they can cut off those loans, they can demand their payments back, because it essentially shows that that's a failing business. And nobody wants to invest into a failing business, uh, so that's where the Trump Organization will be in that dilemma, where they're already hundreds of million dollars in debt, but they would also have to pay billions more that they already owe, and would have to be in a shorter time period than usual. Uh, What that would mean, in the end, is that that could lead to the biggest bankruptcy in the United States when it comes to the real estate industry. That the Trump Organization would have to file for bankruptcy due to all the loans, and that essentially that banks, since they cannot uh, accept any more loans or hand out any more loans to the Trump Organization for their bankruptcy, they will start taking their assets. And their assets in this organization will essentially total like the loans that they need to pay back. So it doesn't mean that like Trump organization will file for bankruptcy like a like a Sears, for instance, where they still have some locations. It will be a total wipeout that all their assets will have to be sold or have to be repossessed in order to cover for the massive amount of debts, which is kind of why Trump wanted to win 2020, because if he was to continue four years as president, all these investigations would have stalled and he would be able to continue with his scheming and his uh, counts of tax fraud. But it's really interesting how it turned out, and I'm expecting to see some results within the next year, year and a half, because I know the judicial system can be quite slow. So that's what I'm expecting for uh, the Trump organization. And it'll be quite interesting to see how banks will respond to false records, if that is true. And it could quite potentially lead to the biggest bankruptcy in history and the biggest downfall of a wealthy plutocrat like Donald Trump and his family. Um, But I think that's the only thing I wanna cover when it comes to a nationwide perspective. Uh, I know a couple of things have happened internationally, um, but I don't think I have done enough research into it yet to address it to my viewers. Um, But there is something I do wanna cover before um, the 30 minutes is up. I want to talk about something in the state of Maine, and that is LD1708. So I talked about it last time, how there is some complications, and I'll review that again. But LD1708 is an act to establish the Pine Tree Power Company, which will essentially buy out the monopoly that's on the state's energy grid right now between Central Maine Power and Verson. So essentially, uh, it would be a big buyout. It'll be about, I think it's valued at $8 billion as the acquisition. And since it will be a nonprofit public utilities company, it would essentially um, reduce the savings. And I think it's estimated to reduce energy costs by 58% uh, from nine and a half cents to six cents, if I'm not mistaken, per kilowatt hour. And it's expected to save $9 billion over 30 years, according to Silkman, which was an economist that worked in the governor's office. Um, so, This bill has been very controversial in this state because there's been a lot of ads from CMP and Versant talking about it being government controlled power. There's been a lot of like uh, conflict between each party 
And surprisingly, it has been a bipartisan issue. A lot of Republicans think it's foreign and foreign influence uh, when it comes to CMP and Versailles, and they want to take back the grid. Democrats agree with that. There's some Democrats that dissented, thinking that this will lose money for the state. A lot of Republicans dissented, thinking that it will lose money for the state as well. But thankfully, it passed the House 77 to 68. It passed the Senate 18 to 15. And it's now heading to the governor's desk, which after the governor's desk means that it will, I think it will go to a referendum because there's a provision in there where they want the public to decide on a certain question. Um, but there was a lot of complications during that day. I actually went up to the state house to uh, keep an eye on it and to see how it went. And there was a lot of amendments back and forth. I think it went through the House and Senate four times before it came to a final vote. In fact, failed the Senate vote one time because it was uh, 19 to 16, like all 35 senators voted. And then two realized that there wasn't a provision in there that they wanted and it flipped and it was 17 to 18, it failed. But they did another vote and the other vote was 18 to 15 because two senators dropped out because of a pairing. And a pairing is essentially means that like, something came up for one senator so it's almost like out of goodwill that the other senator of the opposite side drops out and that's what they did and it passed 18 to 15. the governor is expected to veto it or the best chance for that bill to pass is essentially not her signing it and letting it uh, become into law in 10 days uh, but that means that there will be a huge campaign in maine and that there will be a lot of funding going towards it. It could potentially go to a 2021 November ballot, but it can also go to a November 2022 ballot. It'll be quite interesting to see how it plays out. Um, the proponents of the bill make a good point about saving money, allowing renewable energy, talking about foreign influence coming out of main politics. Uh, but it'll also talk, uh, opponents also make a good point that they think that private utilities monopoly wasn't as bad. However, that uh, opponent's argument of it not being as bad and that it doesn't have an, a, much of an effect as like a government control power will, would kind of diminished a couple weeks ago when there was a 9% rate hike on energy prices, which caused a huge rift and some senators in fact flipped their vote because of that moment. Um, but that's all I got for today. Uh, we talked about the second reconciliation package and all that fiasco up in Washington. We talked about the Trump organization with their indictments and with CFO Alan Weisselberg talking about the complications there. Then we talked about LD1708, which was just right now in Maine politics. And I think that's all I got for today. Thank you very much for listening and I will see you next Monday.